Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. First up, it's Emmy-winning journalist and current host on the QVC Cable Network, Kirsten Lindquist, addressing matters related to God's faithfulness through infertility and the adoption process. Then the perspective of a parent of a child with autism, you'll be hearing from Tani Cullen as she shares about the extremely negative diagnosis of her son's condition and how she discovered the special way her son, Josiah, communicated. Also, filmmaker Ralph Witter, who is involved with the theatrical release, The Promise, which contains a faith component centered around Christian persecution. And on this edition of The Intersection, two accounts of the Trinity Lutheran case, which was heard recently before the U.S. Supreme Court. First, you'll hear from Bruce Hausconnect to focus on the family with whom I spoke prior to the oral arguments. Then from the stream, Rachel Alexander presents some comments she shared after the hearing. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Kirsten Lindquist is a television personality who has had a developing story taking place behind the scenes, Her struggles with infertility, as well as adoption, and the experience of God's faithfulness are part of the journey the past few years. She's written a book called Five Months Apart, A Story of Infertility, Faith, and Grace. This is Kirsten Lindquist. It actually started back when I was in news working for uh, ABC. When all this was going on, um, I started blogging about it and so many women started coming, coming out and this was, this was many years ago. So blogging wasn't quite as popular then, but so many women started coming out and, and, and saying, wow, I'm so glad you're sharing your story and you're being so transparent about it. I'm going through this. And I, the, the underlying, um, topic from everybody who talked to me about it was shame and secrecy and embarrassment when it came to miscarriage and fertility and, and the desire to adopt everybody talked about it in hushed tones. And I felt when I was going through it that I needed support and I needed women in the community to rally around me. And I didn't feel like anybody was doing that. So when the Lord just kept putting on my heart that I had to write this whole, I don't want to say horrific, but there were parts of it that were horrific story um, of these three or four years in my life. When he kept on saying, you got to put that down and share it with others, the, the real goal was for other women to start talking with their friends and family about it as well. And, um, and bring it all out of the secrecy and shame that kind of surrounds infertility and adoption. We started young, you know, in our, in our 20s, and we thought, like everybody does, that it would be easy to have children, and then there was miscarriages, and then there was going for infertility treatment, and um, it, it brought my husband and I to our knees. I mean, we, we, it was the lowest points of our lives. I mean, we, we, it nearly ruined our marriage, which it does for so many couples, um, even if you survive infertility and you end up having children, the statistics are staggering in that couples break up. And going through adoption, same thing. Even if you get a successful adoption, the, the couples that break up, it, it, it's really amazing. And I think it's only by the grace of God, which is why that's in the title, which is why my daughter's name is Grace, uh, that we survived it, that we were able to stay together. I mean, nothing's all roses, but... but uh, he he met us there at our knees, and we were at the darkest points in our life. And for the woman going through it, for having the miscarriages and going month after month with failed infertility treatments and that type of thing, obviously it was more of a of a physical thing on me. But as to have a a partner watch your 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 partner go through this 
um, you know, my husband, he went through a lot of the same exact uh, emotions. And it was hard for me because at the time I was on um, local television and um, every single morning and I had to, you know, smile through it and pretend everything was okay. And really I wanted to get out there and just scream that, you know, this is not okay and why is this happening and what's the Lord doing? But I found that when I got to my lowest, lowest point, and I was so angry at God, which I think is very okay to be, you know, he was there. At least we were in it together, and we were having that dialogue. The, the, the scary part for me is when men, women go through this, and they're so angry with the Lord, and they're so frustrated, and then they just turn away. You know, my big message is, even if you're angry with him, even if you don't know what's going on, keep talking to him, because he is going to be there, and he's going to get you through this no matter what it is. The Lord is so good. We, it makes me tired of thinking about it. I mean, we didn't, there was times when we thought that we would never be parents, and, we, and I had to try and come to grips with that. And I think a lot of women and couples, that, that happens. And you have so many people who tell you, oh, it'll happen, it'll happen. And, and I think that when you're going through this, like, it might not. That might be the Lord's plan, and I have to be okay with that. And blessedly, that wasn't the Lord's plan. We, um, we had a, our final round of fertility treatments worked. I was at the lowest point in my life. People were like, oh, you finally relaxed and you got pregnant. <laughs> no, I was, I was, again, on my knees. And I thought there was no way this final round of fertility treatment is going to work. Um, and it did, as we had already gone through the adoption process and we were matched and we were expecting a baby. So we ended up having a biological child and adopting um, our daughter five months apart, hence the name of the the uh, the book. So my adopted daughter mm. was born first. I was pregnant when we had her, and then um, and then my biological daughter was born as well. Um, then our story wasn't over. We have another adopted son, um, and it was very you know it, it continues. Adoption and infertility doesn't stop with having the children. People say over and over again, oh, you know, Lord works in mysterious ways, and you know, I'm too glad he went through this. Everything happens for a reason. And I say over and over again. I wouldn't relive that. I don't want to go through that again. I think that that lessens our pain. That lessens our story when we say, oh, it's all, it all worked out for good. It did. But that was a real difficult time in our lives. And though we do have the most amazing children on earth and we're mm. so, 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 so blessed, I wouldn't want to go through it again. Kirsten Lindquist here on The Intersection. Find out more by visiting the website, Kirsten, that's K-E-R-S-T-I-N, Lindquist.com. The Intersection continues now with Tawny Cullen, the author of the book, Josiah's Fire, Autism Stole His Words, God Gave Him a Voice. In our recent conversation, she discussed the story of her son, who was diagnosed early on with autism and has not spoken since age two, and how they saw God work in his life and how Josiah communicates in a unique way. Here now from that conversation is Tawny Cullen. I had learned about this particular method uh, where kids like Josiah were were being taught how to learn and spell by pointing at letters. And I thought, I have to get this for my son. We went and learned this particular method um, in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and I was doing this method with him for about a year. Well, up to that point, he had only been communicating by pointing at pictures on his iPad, you know, things like, I want cookie or go to the bathroom, <laughs> And so I'm teaching him how to learn and spell, and uh, it's slow going, but I could tell he was in there. And one of the things that they said was, assume age-level intelligence. It was with that that my Mm. perspective started shifting, and I started seeing my son differently. 
And that was a, an important thing, you know, even for parents that have children with autism or, or um, people that work with those that have autism is what if you assumed age level intelligence? How would you speak to them differently? How would you treat them differently? Um, that changed my perspective and, and it also improved my spiritual walk. This is how God sees us. He sees the potential in us and um, he sees us, uh, you know, through his eyes. So how do we start seeing ourselves in that way? So I started really speaking life over my son. And um, then one particular night we're sitting at the kitchen table and I'm just doing the lessons like I try to do 25 minutes a night. And um, he, he hadn't up to that point ever communicated anything that was of any opinion or anything that hadn't been given to him to basically parrot back. And so I'm reading to him from the children's Bible and I read to him about how Jesus healed the blind man. And then I, I said, Josiah, Jesus healed the blind man. What did Jesus do? Did he H-E-A-L heal the blind man or did he P-L-A-Y play with the blind man? I ripped the paper in half, tapped on heal, tapped on play. He appropriately chose the one that said heal, and I said, okay, let's spell heal. And he goes to spell it out on the iPad where it was uh, alphabetical, alphabetical letters and big buttons. He touches G. This is just one, you know, this is just one little pointer finger at a time. He touches G. Then he touches O, and I'm like, oh, he's missing it. He goes on to spell his first ever independent sentence, God is a good gift giver. Mm. And that's when our story really began to change. And I'm going, I know that's not something, you know, I go around saying or I'm, you know, talking about. I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, he's getting healed, like, right before my eyes. Like, I was sure, like, this is our moment of healing. But it didn't come (laughs) in the way that I thought it would come. And we continue to pray for Josiah's wholeness. But what happened was his communication began to open up. And, of course, we, we who had not had any conversations with our son started asking him all sorts of questions. You know, what's your favorite color? What do you like to do? What's your favorite cartoon character? Um, he could tell us things like there's a rock in my shoe, you know, which can be very important things to know. But then Josiah, um, he started writing things that were um, beyond, I knew it was beyond what he had ever been taught or exposed to. And it was, it was like, Howard, how do you know this stuff? Um, I, I started kind of wondering what exactly was happening here because uh, it was – kind of extending over into a realm that I wasn't familiar with. It wasn't on my grid. And um, eventually I I started pasting together, like he is talking about things of heaven somehow, but I couldn't figure out what are you seeing or how are you seeing it? And one particular night I, I asked him, I said, you know, Josiah, if, could you just finish this line for me? And I wrote, and I said to him, my favorite place in heaven is, because I kept getting these little clues, like he's seeing something somehow. And he goes on to write his first ever, you could call it a song or a poem. He wrote, my favorite place in heaven is over peaceful waters. Peace is real. Tired souls naturally test peace. Roses are so stunning. Worship the king. Sing loud to the prize pardon who requires praise. Angels' taste of his holiness ordained great attitude of praise. 
Help us worship the Lord together, please him. All you hail the king of majesty forever. Make a noise to the king on the throne. He's seven and a half years old at this point. Connie Cullen here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website josiasfire.com. The Intersection continues now with filmmaker Ralph Witter, one of the executive producers of the film The Promise. In our recent conversation, he highlighted the plot of the film and the way that Christian persecution is an element of it. From that conversation, this is Ralph Witter. The movie's about the journey of Mikhail Bogosian. And, you know, he's a small-time apothecary, wants to uh, increase his medical education. He gets engaged and uses a dowry to go to Constantinople uh, in 1915 to, you know, become a doctor. And... He gets embroiled and gets, you know, facing and uh, experiencing the racism and persecution that happens uh, as the world, as the First World War is just, you know, beginning to happen. And um, like any hero, he gets, you know, an ordinary guy gets thrust into this extraordinary circumstance. And it's about his journey and the love story that is on top of it and the background of the Ottoman Empire crumbling and um, the genocide of the Armenian people. And um, we are fortunate enough to attract, you know, Christian Bale as a, a reporter that is part of this sort of love triangle, and then Oscar Isaac to be the lead character uh, playing Mikhail Bogosian. So um, it's kind of an old-fashioned story. It's told on a big canvas um, trying to you know, uh, get at and demonstrate what was happening in those days and tell a story that certainly the Armenian community doesn't want to be forgotten. Absolutely. And so you look, as I understand it, with Mikhail, who's played by Oscar Isaac, if I'm not mistaken, he was part of The Force Awakens, the Star Star Wars film. And he, he basically, in his hometown... Turkish Muslims and Armenian Christians had lived side by side for centuries. During the last yep. days of the Ottoman Empire, things really became a bit more hostile. What were some of the forces that that led to that taking place? Well, you know, they didn't want any opposition, and so it was much easier to silence the opposition. And the historical record shows that they rounded up on April 24th, is the day they commemorate. They rounded up the intellectuals first to imprison and dispose of them so that there would be no opposition to what they wanted to do in remaking Turkey into, um, you know, the regime that they wanted. And then that just escalated into relocating the Armenian people into the desert, cynically saying they can be creative, they can be, you know, industrious, and they can figure it out. But in fact, they put them on rail cars, locked them in, sent them to the desert, and let them left the cars until people died. And then they swept the cars out and did it again. And a million and a half people died, marched or trucked or trained um, out to the desert to, you know, purify their regime. And it's Hitler on April 24th. You'll see this quote in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. Um, there's a quote from Hitler in the 30s where he says, Look what they did with the Armenians. No one remembers them. You know, we can do it again. Mm. So that's that's really why yeah. the story is being told, is that, you know, it's that same kind of thing of keep the promise, never forget. 
Well, Ralph Winter is joining us today here on The Meeting House on Faith Radio, and he is one of the executive producers of the film The Promise in theaters on Friday, April 21st. And I wanted you to, to fast forward to today as we look at Christian persecution all around the world and what this film might say with respect to some of the, the situations that, that Christians are finding themselves in in the world today. Well, you're exactly right. And, you know, the persecution continues, you know, and it, and it began not just in Armenia, but, you know, it's been going on for centuries. And so we're highlighting what had happened. Even as we were making the film and we shot scenes of massacres, it was very, very hard on the crew because, you know, we were watching the same images in Syria and other places, and it felt like we were simply duplicating some of the images that we saw happening in current events, and yet in the story this was happening, you know, 100 years earlier. Um, Yes, that is part of the reason to tell the story is that this is not isolated. It happens too often. It happens in too many places where there is not just a cultural or a class, but a religious persecution, um, an economic persecution uh, against Christians. And uh, so, yeah, that's definitely part of the intention of the movie to highlight that. Ralph Witter here on The Intersection. To learn more about the film, go to thepromise.movie. Note the film is rated PG-13. You can read a review at the Plugged In website at pluggedin.com. This is The Intersection, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more through the website meetinghouseonline.info. There you'll find a link to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand through which you can listen to and download full conversations from recent guests featured on The Intersection podcast. You could also listen to The Intersection podcast or download current editions. You could also subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs can be found. One is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House program. The other is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Video content is accessible also. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. We'll hear now on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, two accounts relative to the Trinity Lutheran case, which was heard recently before the U.S. Supreme Court. First up, it's Bruce HouseConnect, judicial analyst for Focus on the Family. He commented on this religious liberty case that involves a church in Missouri wishing to participate in a publicly funded playground program. Here now from that conversation is Bruce HouseConnect. The uh, Trinity Lutheran case out of Missouri uh, will be heard, and Gorsuch will be on the court uh, in time to hear that case and join in deciding that. So who knows? We might even see a written opinion out of him at, at some point, although as the junior justice on the court, it would be highly unlikely that he would write the, the majority opinion or the major dissent if, if there's a loss, but he's perfectly willing and, and allowed to uh, write his own concurrences or dissents as well. So maybe we'll get a chance to hear from him on this very important case. Well, set up the the particulars because you know someone might look at this from a you know from a wide angle view and think, okay, so what do old tires and children's playgrounds have to do with religious freedom? 
I know that you can fill in the blanks for us. <laughs> it's amazing how this has become a major religious freedom case, and all involving a, a state program, a secular program in Missouri, where the government provides grants every year for schools to purchase a rubber rubber compound made from old scrap tires to put on their playgrounds to make them safer. And so as part of that program that goes on in Missouri, um, Trinity Lutheran's kindergarten uh, applied for the grant. In fact, uh, they were one of the top qualified grants uh, recipients and initially determined to be a grant recipient. But however, uh, the state uh, shortly thereafter reversed course and said, oh, I'm sorry, you cannot have this grant uh, to purchase the playground uh, surface with because you're owned by a church. And the Missouri Constitution says that we uh, no money can ever be taken from the public treasury treasury either directly or indirectly in aid of any church and and the provision goes on and on so they said you're a church you can't participate in this uh, government program even though this does nothing to do with preaching the gospel or building buildings or paying for salaries of of your uh, pastor you can't participate so that implicates uh, the, the first amendment of the constitution not just uh, the Missouri Constitution, because that First Amendment Establishment Clause and Free Exercise Clause has to do with government, including state government, uh, not favoring religion, but also not being hostile to it. They have to maintain a very good balance uh, that puts them in the middle. Um, this case will determine whether or not the state is in that middle or whether they have they have gone beyond and are actually discriminating against the the church by denying them a basic secular benefit that um that other schools in the in the region would be able to participate in and if you want to even uh, open the envelope even wider can a state determine that uh, churches aren't entitled to any secular services um because they're a church when you think about that for a second this implicates Things like fire protection, police protection, utilities coming to the into your church. Um, there's all kinds of ways in which churches are integrated into the public secular services of any lo- locality and state and, and and even the country for that matter. So, if this case says that a, a state can uh, deny a secular benefit to a church, then all of these things we take for granted. Mm about how, how churches interact with municipalities already, those are in jeopardy, which means this, a, a state or a city can discriminate against churches almost at will. And so that's the logical extreme to which this case could go on to in future years if it's decided against the church. That makes it a very important First Amendment case. Bruce House Connect here on The Intersection. The Focus on the Family website is focusonthefamily.com. To access his department, you can go to the social issues section of the site. Well, continuing with respect to this case before the U.S. Supreme Court, here now is Rachel Alexander, senior editor for The Stream and former assistant attorney general for the state of Arizona. Those oral arguments were heard on April 19th. Following those arguments, I spoke with Rachel 
Here are some of her comments. Yeah, it is going to be the biggest case the court hears this year on religious liberty. Wow. And, you know, at first glance, it just seems like, you know, something small. It's just a church playground. But, you know, what it comes down to is uh, can the church apply for funds that have nothing to do with its religious purposes? And so in this case, this church applied for a state grant for the Playground Scrap Tire Surface Materials Grant Program, which recycles scrap rubber tires into rubber surfaces. And, you know, the church just merely wanted to have its playground, you know, surface redone. Um, Not only do children who attend the preschool there use the playground, but there's neighborhood children that use it and lots of impoverished children in that neighborhood. In fact, when the church applied for the grant program, uh, it was ranked fifth out of 44 applicants. And so the, the church was highly qualified to get the grant, and um, basically it was rejected because the state said, no, this violates our state constitutional uh, prohibition on indirectly or directly funding a religious organization. And um, the reason it's such a big deal, and this is such an important case, is because you can think how broad that this ruling could be interpreted if it should go against the church. You know, it could be used to deny emergency services, you know, the the police or, you know, the fire services from coming out to a church if, you know, those services are needed. Because you could always say, oh, it's indirectly going to fund the church. And really with this case, if you boil it all down, it's as if the the state is saying, well, you, church, you cannot participate in this state program. And the only reason we're not letting you participate in this program is because you are a church. And I mean, just boiling it down with that degree of simplicity, that just doesn't sound right, does it? No, I mean, even the Supreme Court, um, I don't agree with a lot of its, you know, recent constitutional decisions over the years because I think it splits hairs, but the Supreme Court itself has said that you have to treat religion neutrally. And this is not treating religion neutrally. No. In fact, this is singling, the ch- you know, a church out and treating it differently. And you think how unfair it is, all those taxpayers that go to that church – they are paying for this state program, but they don't get to receive the benefits of their tax dollars. What was the posture with respect to Mr. Gorsuch? Already there were news reports on his performance on Monday saying that, well, he was a, a, he was on the loquacious side. So so what were, were some of the points that he was making and some of the questions he was asking in court on Wednesday? Yeah, he was very aggressive in asking questions. Um, you know, he's not going to be like Clarence Thomas has been for most of his tenure on the Supreme Court. Uh, he's very avidly interested. And, uh, you know, I do believe he's going to be very similar to Scalia, who he replaced. And um, you're right, in his prior uh, religious liberty decisions, he's come down on the side of religious liberty. And he said a few things in his questions that make it really clear how he's going to rule, in my opinion. Um, he, he, he said twice that the uh, Missouri rule constitutes religious discrimination. So um, he's, you know, I think it's pretty easy how he's going to rule. The, you know, the key vote is really going to be Anthony Kennedy, the swing vote on, on the court. And if you look at Anthony Kennedy's history of voting in the past, he tends to come down on the side of religious liberty, except when it comes to LGBT issues. And this is not an LGBT issue. Now, there is some irony not to get into the weeds, but um, the state is relying on this case out of Washington State, which uh, did not let theology students 
uh, apply for uh, taxpayer-funded scholarships. And Kennedy was uh, a vote that ruled against the theology students. But we think that case can be really distinguished because, you know, the founding fathers clearly said, you know, they didn't want um, taxpayer dollars going to fund clergy. Um, and, you know, you, you can say that that's definitely more of a case where the, you know, religious instruction is involved directly, whereas in this case, this has nothing to do with proselytizing or religious instruction or anything. This is just a playground. Rachel Alexander here on The Intersection. The website address is thestream.org. Well, that just about wraps up this edition of The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. You'll find a link to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand. Also, you can get subscribed to the Intersection Podcast. Two blogs are accessible. Plus, you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content, including content from the National Religious Broadcasters Convention held in late February and early March in Orlando, Florida. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.